Now, our Holy Father, thank You for the power of Your Word. You said, so will be Your Word that goes from Your mouth, that it will never return void without accomplishing the purpose for which You've sent it. We thank You that it is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank You that the Word of God was the imperishable seed that You said You planted in our hearts that we might believe and be saved. And you told us that like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the Word so that we can grow. So we come in humility and we ask that you'd work in our lives. Thank you that we're sinners saved by grace. And as saints, you are furthering the sanctification process through the preaching and teaching in obedience to your Word. We pray for our nation this morning as your people. It is in desperate need of a turning. You've given us a president and a vice president that seem to mimic Ahab and Jezebel. Wicked people, lost people who this week continue to rail against the truth of your word. Father, we would despair except for the fact that you are sovereign and in control. And you told us not to fear when lawlessness increases, that we should look up because our redemption draws nigh. But until that day, we ask that you would give us freedom as the church, the body of Christ in this nation, to preach the gospel, help us to be good stewards of the word that you've entrusted to us. Give us in this new, fresh week an opportunity to look for people, for opportunities to reach out, to invite them to church, to share the good news. Whatever opportunity that you would give us, we are yours, we are available. And so I ask now that you come and help me and strengthen me and fill me, that as this message is heard this morning and later on through other mediums that you've given to us, that lives would be changed for the glory of Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Proverbs of the New Testament, the Epistle of James. I hope you are trying to read this once a week, as uh, many of you have already expressed to me. It's just a short 108 verses. You can read it in less than 15 minutes. And as you read it over and over and over again, it will become part of you you will begin to think your way through it, paragraph by paragraph. It will flow through your mind and heart, and God will use it not just in helping you, but also in helping those that He has entrusted you to disciple. Now, I've told you that some Bible teachers are convinced that it's impossible to outline the book of James because he addresses some 30 different topics. But if you read it and reread it, you will actually see there's a pattern. In fact, if there's one word that typifies this short little letter, it is the word faith. In this letter, James examines real faith versus phony faith. He unfolds mature faith versus infant faith. In one word, it's about faith. And again, I've told you many times that as you read and reread a book of the Bible, you'll begin to see how it divides up. And so as this chart reminds us, there are three major divisions to the book of James. Chapter 1 looks at the, the development of faith. 
And he deals with three problems, the problem of pain or trials, the problem of temptation, and then the problem of failing to apply God's Word to your life. And so he's really dealing with the subject of how does our faith develop? How does it progress? When you come to the second section, he deals with the distortion of faith. And he primarily in chapters 2 through 4 focuses on three issues. He deals with our testimony, he deals with our tongue, and he deals with things that we ought to avoid. So this section of the book becomes kind of a spirituality check. He finished chapter 1. Well, the guy who thinks he's religious may not really be religious at all. He may not be spiritual the way he thinks he is because we tend to often measure spirituality by how much we know, maybe how many Bible studies we attend, maybe if we've led a Bible study, um, maybe how many times we've read through the Bible from cover to cover. But James measures it in a different way. And so we will come to one of the real litmus tests that he gives the tongue He's going to address how we treat other people. When we come to chapter 4, he's going to deal with three thorny issues in verses 1 through 10 of the fourth chapter, the problem of worldliness. Then he is going to deal in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4 with the problem of judging one another, especially in the body of Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, the problem of perspective. How do we as people who are twice born headed for heaven How do we make our lives count for all of eternity? How do we lay up treasure in heaven to use the words of Jesus Christ? Then, of course, when you come to the fifth chapter, he deals with the display of faith. And once again, he hammers three issues. He deals first with our possessions. How do we relate to the things of this world that God has blessed us with in a healthy way? Then he deals with the subject of patience Then he finishes the book on the subject of prayer. And of course, prayer is sprinkled all the way through this short little letter, but it's certainly highlighted in the final paragraph. And you learn as you read the epistle of James that he is a man who's not simply a theoretician. He's a practitioner. Prayer to him is not something he just read in a book somewhere, but something that he practices in his life. Now, that's the big picture of the book. Keep reading it. Try to read it once a week. I want to begin by reading our passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you do not have a Bible, come to meet the pastor, and you will be able to receive one. James 2, beginning now in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes... You pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The physician of the soul is like the physician of the body. He must perform and achieve three goals. Number one, he must diagnose the problem. Number two, he must prescribe the remedy. And number three, he must effect the cure. And so James, like a spiritual physician, takes his stethoscope and he puts it to the heart of this first century assembly and he discovers that they are suffering from the hardening of their spiritual arteries. Now, again, I told you that some people have great difficulty outlining the book of James, and that's typically because they've not read it through enough in a single sitting. And you cannot imagine how much your Bible study will be enhanced if you just read a book over and over and over and over again. And so some look at chapters 1 and 2 as totally unrelated. Now, certainly it enters into a new section of the book, but he's actually taking what he finished in chapter 1, and he's expanding the theme. If you remember, in chapter 1, he dealt with the subject of trials. He wants us to help to respond properly to trials, to consider them joy. And if we don't, then those trials can potentially become temptations. And the only way to properly respond to trials and to temptations is to be rightly related to the Word of God. And so we learned last time that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God not only to save us, for we are born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God, Peter will say, but it's also the word that he uses to save our souls. And we saw the tense there, to sanctify us. In Peter's words, like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow. And so at the end of chapter one, if you'll look back on a page in verses 19 through 27, we discover that he asks and answers a basic question. Is the word of God sanctifying me? Is the Word of God making me more like Jesus Christ? Is God's Word accomplishing its work in our life? And his answer, as we saw, is it all depends. It all depends on whether or not we welcome God's Word. And to welcome the Word of God is to receive it in a clean, honest, and humble heart. And so if we come here with confusion in the human heart, clouded by sin, then you will miss so much of what God wants to say to you. And so we're commanded in verse 21 to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. We saw there has to be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. And so you can hear hundreds and hundreds of sermons, attend scores of Bible studies in your life, but not really have them change you and sanctify you. And so he told us again, in humility, receive the word implanted. If we have a spirit of arrogance, I already know this. What are you giving me this message all over again? Maybe this is for someone else. And you cannot really grow. There must be an earnestness and a hunger. Like a baby wants to drink milk at its mother's breast. There must be a hunger for God's word. We must earnestly, to use his illustration, look intently into the mirror 
to see what it is saying. And so how do I know that it's really at work in my life? Number one, I'll have control over my tongue. Number two, he emphasizes that I'll have a servant's heart for those who cannot return uh, my service in response. And then third, I'll be unstained by the world. And so in order to press the question, is God's word really working in my life? He gives three proofs. But now he takes those three things that he ended chapter one and he unfolds them in reverse order. And these three things that he is going to unfold pertain not only to the first century church, but to the 21st century church. And so now he's asking and answering the question, what if I fail to really welcome the word of God? What if I don't deal with sin? What if I don't earnestly hunger for scripture? And so in reverse order, he begins by showing we'll be stained by the world's values. That's verses 1 to 13. Then in verses 14 through 26, we'll not take care of the needs of other people. You will not have a faith that genuinely works. And then third in chapter 3, you will not have control over your tongue. So listen, these chapters are all related. They're not impossible to map out. James is a very logical person, and when you see the connections, it becomes quite, quite powerful. Again, you have to read and reread the book to see how it unfolds. And so we are to keep ourselves unstained, he says here at the end of chapter 1, by the world. And one way to know whether you are stained or polluted by the world is whether or not you are a spiritual snob. And so the title of this morning's message. Sometimes I'll hear someone say, well, we want to start a New Testament church. I think, oh, really? Well, what kind of New Testament church do you want to start? Do you want to start a church like the church at Galatia that was covered over in legalism? Do you want to start a church like the church at Corinth that had problems with drunkenness, immorality, the misuse of spiritual gifts, factions, suing one another? Or maybe you'd like to be like the church at Thessalonica where some people had just quit work. They had become lazy, waiting for the return of Christ. Or maybe you'd like to be like the church at Ephesus who in its later stages had lost its first love. Or maybe the church at Pergamum that had compromised orthodoxy. You see, when you take a close look at the Bible, you soon discover that the early church was not a perfect church. It suffered from the same maladies that we suffer because we are all descendants of Adam. By nature, we are all sinners, and that sin can express itself in a variety of ways. And so contrary to the ignorance of our day, the early church was not the society of the perfect, but indeed we are to be the society of the progressing. Paul will say to Timothy, make sure your progress is evident to all. And when the Word of God is taught, and when the Word of God is welcomed, we will begin to see issues in our life corrected. And so what James demonstrates in our passage here in verses 1 to 13 is what will happen if the Word of God is not welcomed. You'll have snobbery. You'll have partiality. You'll have discrimination. You'll have spiritual pride. Now, let me give you an outline of this tightly constructed argument so that if you fall asleep, you will at least know where we are when you wake back up. In verse 1, he introduces the principle. 
In verses 2 through 4, he illustrates the principle. In verses 5 through 11, he explains the principle. And then finally, in verses 12 and 13, he applies the principle. There's a note-taking outline in your bulletin, or if you're listening online, there's a place where you can print it out. If you're not sure how to do that, ask the people monitoring our various social ministries and websites, and they'll give you instructions. So let's begin with the principle of partiality stated. He begins by stating a principle in reference to partiality. Let's look now at verse 1. My brethren, he's addressing Christians, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Most of you know that the way to emphasize in the original language of the New Testament, they didn't use highlighters, they didn't underline in red, they changed the normal word order. And so literally, it doesn't read real smooth in English, but this phrase with an attitude of personal favoritism is moved out of its typical order and put at the front of the sen sentence for emphasis. Literally reads, my brethren, do not with an attitude of personal favoritism hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, showing favoritism is totally incompatible with our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. It's totally inconsistent. It's totally incongruent with who Jesus is. It's like trying to mix oil and water. Personal favoritism. The ESV renders it partiality. The King James says respect of persons. The Greek New Testament literally takes two Greek words, bleeds them together, and literally it means to receive by face. Initially, it was referred to someone uh, that you evaluated, evaluated on the basis of the way in which they looked. But as time, the word progressed and took on more of a metaphorical meaning, where you evaluated a person not simply by their face, by the way they looked, but by their status, by their education, by their race, by their wealth, by their rank, regardless of the merits of their character or their personality. The Amplified Bible, which is a paraphrase, renders it, stop holding the faith with snobbery. It's the idea here of judging others by the external which is clearly evil, that's not found in God the Father, it's certainly not found in God the Son, and when we worship in the Spirit, He would not have us to worship in that way. Now, many of you have done studies on the attributes of God, maybe you've read books about them, and very often when people study the attributes of God, they'll study things like God's omniscience, or God's omnipresence, or uh, God's uh, holiness, or God's grace, or God's mercy, or God's immutability. But, you know, I've got a dozen books on the attributes of God in my library, and I can't find one that deals with the attribute of impartiality. God is an impartial God. Paul said to the church at Rome, for there is no partiality with God. Do you remember that occasion in Acts chapter 10 when God gave Peter a vision of this sheet that came down from heaven three different times with these different types of clean and unclean animals in them? And Peter says, I, I can't eat anything that's unclean. And 
And the purpose is not to teach him something about food, but to teach him something about the way God deals with Jews and Gentiles because he had shown some favoritism, some partiality in the way he dealt with his Jewish brethren versus that of Gentiles. And after the vision and after God shows him that this relates to the fact that Gentiles are going to be on the same par in the kingdom of God as Jews and that they receive the Holy Spirit in the exact same way that the Jewish people did on the day of Pentecost, he concludes, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And as you would expect, since Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, he never, ever, ever showed any partiality whether he was ministering to a beggar or whether he was ministering to a wealthy Jewish leader, whether he was ministering to a Pharisee, the word Pharisee meant a separated one, or to a man covered over in leprosy that was considered unclean, whether he ministered to a virtuous woman or to immoral prostitutes, whether he ministered to the high priest or to common worshipers. He cared about the famous and the well-liked, and he cared about the outcasts. Do you remember that occasion in John chapter 4? John records the time when Jesus heads to Samaria because there's a woman there who needs salvation. And in John 4, 4, it says, he had to pass through Samaria. I love the old English of the King James. It's a little awkward, but it says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, it's awkward in our day. It wasn't awkward in their day. He must needs to go through Samaria. In other words, he had to, he must go through Samaria. Now, here's a map from picturing the first century provinces. I hope you can make it out. Um, in the north, you have, north of Samaria, you have the province of Galilee, which became Christ's headquarters for three years out of the city of Capernaum. And south of that, you have Samaria, and south of that, you have Judea. So if you're a Jew in Jerusalem, and you're headed to Galilee, you had one of three options. You could go on the western edge of Samaria and kind of walk along the shore, hoping that you will, would avoid any Samaritan people. That's one way to get there. Uh, a second way, the more uh, preferential way, was to walk through the province of Perea along the Jordan River, and you could avoid Samaria altogether. But the third option, especially if you were in a mad rush, the shortest, most direct route was to go straight through Samaria. But if you were a Jew, that was not a preferable route. You didn't want to walk through Samaria. You wanted to go around Samaria. Why? Because they despised the Samaritan people. Now, you remember the kingdom at once was all called Israel, 12 tribes gathered together under its first three kings because of the moral compromise of Solomon under his son Jeroboam. The kingdom split into the north and the south, or Rehoboam, the north and the south. Jeroboam became the king of the north. 10 northern tribes, they called it Israel. So it's a little confusing sometimes because you read about Israel and now he's talking about just the 10 northern tribes. And then you had the two southern tribes under Rehoboam and that was called Judah. Now, if you remember, God sent different prophets to come and preach and it's always important to ask, who is this prophet? Is he preaching before the exile, during the exile, after the exile? When you put it together historically, the Bible will come alive 
And you had these prophets who came into the northern kingdom and said, you've got to repent. And if you don't, God's going to judge you. And he did, and he brought down the Assyrians in 722 BC, and they carried away the 10 northern tribes. They left some of the people, but they took away the best of the people, the most productive people. But some of the people who were left behind by design were there to intermarry with the Assyrian people. And a new race of people was developed, half Jewish, half Gentile. They were called Samaritans. Now, when the 10 northern tribes were together, they had as their capital Samaria. And if you remember, that became a place of worship among other places because they didn't want the Jews in the northern kingdom to go into Jerusalem. They didn't want them to defect to their southern brothers. And so by the time the Babylonian captivity was over and centuries had gone by, you had this half-breed known as Samaritans, and they worshiped in a place called Samaria. And then you had full-blood Jews who worshiped in the place that God called his name to dwell. We call it Jerusalem. So Jesus is on a mission, Dea. He had to. That word is used five different times in the Gospel of John to explain a mission that he was on. It's a major theme of the Gospel. Even uh, Josephus, a first century um, historian who was Jewish of the day, uses the same word to describe the way a Jew would travel to Samaria, that it was essential that he go around Samaria to get to Galilee. So Jesus went to Samaria. Why? Because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And in his omniscience, he knew there was a woman there, a despised woman, because she was so immoral. When Jesus questioned about her home, he pulled back the veneer and says, well, actually, you've been married five times, and the man you're with now is not even your husband. Now, according to the Mishnah, which is a Jewish book, which is kind of a compilation of the Jewish traditions, they considered Samaritans unclean from the cradle. And they considered it in the first century an unforgivable crime for a Jew to marry a Samaritan. But Jesus didn't look at people according to the face, literally. He was not a respecter of persons. He loved the world. He saw this mongrel race. He saw this morally depraved woman for whom he would shed his blood. And he sought after her that she might be saved and that she might worship the living God in spirit and in truth. And so here's the Lord God. He is seeking after this woman. Now understand when he addresses the problem, he doesn't brush over her sin. And so today we have a new administration that says preachers like me are discriminating if we preach against the LBTQ plus lifestyle. No, that's not what the Bible means by discrimination. But we've made this kind of a minority status. And so just before our new president was inaugurated, he held a prayer meeting where he had a prayer meeting led by two transgender people and one homosexual. Then he went and he placed his hand on God's almighty word 
after he had been to church, and he took his promise to the office. What a mockery. And in just these last two weeks, we've seen executive orders written that is freeing up the murder of innocent babies in the womb and is promoting what God calls an abomination. Now, wonder, God says, the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to him. When you endorse what is wicked, God calls you a wicked person, and he in turn calls your prayers wicked. So to speak against sin is not unloving. It's actually the most loving thing you can do to tell people the truth. A dad called me a few weeks ago or emailed me through the website, and he said, Pastor Carl, I have a son who is living with his girlfriend. I didn't raise him that way, and he no longer believes the Bible. Well, that's what people do when they don't like the Bible. They just say it's not true. Or they say it's partially true, and then you pick the parts you like, and you discard the parts you don't. So I reminded the dad, I said, ultimately, it's an issue of authority. I sent him my little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. But sometimes we have to preach as pastors against things that God calls sinful. And when you do that, you're not discriminating against people. You're discriminating against people if you preach about sin, and in the process, you despise those people. I've only had the chance to witness to one transgender person, and my heart was filled with a sense of compassion. What brought this man who says he's now a woman to the point that he is at? And so Jesus loved sinners. He cared about sinful people. And he didn't brush over this woman's adultery. Even his enemies said this, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Don't miss that. That was a statement from his enemies that they had observed that Jesus cared about people's souls. He was never a snob. He never walked around with his nose in the air, though he could have because he was God in human flesh. He was kind to the Samaritan woman just like he was to the religious man, Nicodemus. He was available to blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus as much as he was to the rich young ruler. He cared for the outcasts and the untouchables as he did for the scribes and the Pharisees. So James' premise here in chapter 2 is very simple, namely that favoritism in faith is not compatible with our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice verse 1. It's actually a command. It's an imperative construction in the Greek New Testament so that you could translate it really in one of two ways. You could either translate it, stop being partial, or you could render it, do not ever get in the habit of being partial. In other words, if you're showing favoritism, cut it out. And if you're not, then don't ever get caught up in it. Now, that's the problem of partiality, the principle of partiality stated. Secondly, I want us to look at the principle of partiality illustrated. The principle of partiality illustrated. Notice the questions that James asked beginning now in verse 2. 
For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And his answer is, yes, you have. So to help us to see whether or not we are clinged and unstained by the world's values, he gives us a simple little test. Two visitors enter into the assembly, one a rich man, the other a poor man, and he wants to see how we respond to each. Again in verse 2, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Now, to appreciate why James uses this particular illustration, remember the key was in the front door in the first verse. He is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. This is one of the earliest New Testament books as we covered in our introduction. And remember, the early church at first was all Jewish. In fact, the word here for assembly is not the typical word, ecclesia, that refers to an assembly or a group of people, often translated church, but he uses the word synagogue that gives them their word synagogue. And so the early church was exclusively Jewish. Remember, the first Gentiles don't come to faith until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And as the church grew, hatred towards fellow Jews who converted to Christianity also grew. And suddenly, some who were well off instantly became poor. Why? Because they were disowned by their families. Their businesses were boycotted. They were ostracized. They lost their jobs. Now, don't miss the picture here. A congregation of Christians who for the most part are not all that well off when suddenly two men enter into the assembly. Both appear to come late to an assembly that is near full. One arrives late, probably to be seen by men. The other arrives late, no doubt, not to be seen by men. He just wants to slip in unobtrusively to come and worship the living God. Now take note how each is dressed. One man comes in with a gold ring. Actually, the Greek New Testament, you could render it a gold-fingered man or a gold-ring-adorned man. The CJB translation, that doesn't stand for Carl J. Brogy, but the uh, complete Jewish Bible translation renders it, suppose a man comes into your synagogue wearing gold rings and fancy clothes. You have a grammatically singular noun or adjective in Greek that can represent a group of things. Like in English, our word deer can refer to a single deer or to a herd of deer. And so it is very possible in light of the Jewish culture and the way the rich wore their rings that the CJB has it right. He comes in as a gold-fingered man, that he's not wearing a single ring, but he has rings on all of his fingers. In fact, according to the social status of the day, as some historians whose writings have come down to us, that was one way in which you showed off your wealth. It was a sign of wealth. In fact, in the first century, if you wanted to be a big shot, you could go to a place like we might rent a tuxedo, 
You could go and you could rent rings to wear on your finger. And so it was a symbol that you were powerful and rich and wealthy. In addition to the ring or rings that he wears, however you take it, it says that he was dressed in fine clothes. And the word here that modifies clothes is the word lampos. It means shining. We get our word lamp from it. He comes in with shining clothes. And again, that was the way in which you showed your wealth. You would have a robe that very often had literal silver woven through it, and it would shine and it would glisten. So here comes this fella. He has his, in modern day terms, a Rolex watch around his wrist. He has a Hickey Freeman suit on. And there also comes in, notice, a poor man in dirty clothes. He's called a poor man. And the word that God uses here for poor is used in reference elsewhere to someone who's in abject poverty, someone who might be considered a beggar or in 21st century terminology, a homeless person. And he comes in in dirty clothes, or you could translate it uh, shabby as in the ESV or vile in the King James. It literally means a badly stained garment. It's not that he hasn't had a bath and that his clothes haven't been washed, but because he is poor, he doesn't own a variety of clothes. He owns, no doubt, a single piece of clothing that he would use not only to go to work, but he would use it also to come and worship in. And so it was badly stained. So unlike the rich man, the poor man, he has no real connections, he has no money, he has no status. He has nothing really to benefit this first century assembly. That's the setting. James is painting for us two polar opposites, a poor man with no money and a rich man with money to burn. And so he says here in verse 3, his point is to help us to see whether or not, again, God's Word is really taking root in our life. How are we going to respond? He says, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. This uh, partial or snooty usher, as we might call him, took one look at the rich man and he wanted to give him the best seat. Oh, brother Goldfinger. Welcome to our assembly. We are so pleased that you've come here today. Come right down front. We have a special seat just for you. In exposing Phariseeism, Jesus said in Matthew 23, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. The chief seats were the seats down in front, usually off to the side and often turned around facing the audience so that everyone could see this prominent individual. And so this usher says, we're delighted to have you here today, basically meaning I can't hardly wait to pass the offering plate to see what he's going to give. But this snooty usher no sooner seats the rich man, the poor man comes in. He doesn't have the latest suit, the latest fashion, and in this usher's mind, he probably doesn't have a plumb nickel to give to God. And so he says, you stand over here. And if that's not good enough, sit down by my footstool. Sit on the floor. Now, notice carefully verse 3. 
He does not say, sit down at a footstool, circle the little word my, sit down at my footstool. What does that tell me? It tells me, according to the first century Jewish assembly, based on Luke 4.24, that this man is the attendant. That is, he has not only a seat, but he has a footstool. And so this usher or this attendant could have offered this man his footstool, but he says, sit down by it, that is, sit on the floor. I mean, you talk about a prejudicial response to this guy who comes in with nothing. So the church is not that far along before there is already developing first-class seating and stage or coach seating. Good seats and not so good seats. And this guy comes in, everybody stops breathing, and they stare. They give special attention. It's a verb that literally means to stare, to gaze at, to gawk, to look with admiration. Now, notice the question he asks in verse 4. Don't miss it. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And his answer to this rhetorical question is, yes, you have. Now, please do not miss why he treated this man this way. James is telling us that his actions are driven by evil motives. Now, he's not dealing directly here with racism. He's dealing with just general partiality or favoritism. Though obviously, racism could express itself, but racism is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. It's looking at people from the outside rather than the way God sees them. And so here amongst these Christians, they're treating the rich man different from the poor man. And this is not just some breach of hospitality in the mind of God. This is, and I have it circled, evil. I've pastored this church long enough to know that there are people who have joined, and when oftentimes we meet and we find out their history, I find out their experiences in visiting other places. And we have a very diverse community of saints. We have German people, we have Chinese people, we have Japanese, we have Filipinos, we have black, we have white, we have rich, we have Hispanic, we have poor, we have educated, we have uneducated. And uh, some have said, well, I went to that church and I really wasn't welcomed in that church. Now, granted, many of those churches that they came from were what I would call pseudo-churches, fake churches. How do I know? Because I know the pastors. Pastors who don't sometimes have the gospel, sometimes pastors who discount the gospel. We have two Baptist churches in our town that are cooperative Baptists, and that's a denomination that denies the inerrancy of Scripture. We have two Presbyterian churches in our town that do gay marriages. Look, there are lost people, even in the pulpit. But then there are Christians who are pastoring, and their churches are not really open. Why? Because they have a target community. They have a certain group that they want to reach. And I've spoken to some of these men over the years. They said, well, you know, we, we don't really make distinctions. I'll ask them, then why is your church so homogeneous? In a community that is multiracial, that has rich and poor and educated and uneducated, 
This whole thing that Rick Warren postulated on the church 30 years ago of having a target audience is antithetical to the teaching of the New Testament. But you have Christian people who say, well, you know, I'm not partial to people. I like black people. I like Chinese people. I like white people. I like educated people. I like uneducated people. I'm not, I'm not partial. I like white collar. I like professional. I like blue collar. But all the time, they are discriminatory because they could not have fellowship with someone maybe not with the same educational level. Or they might like look down on a skilled tradesman and the skilled tradesman might look down on the highly educational professional because he doesn't have a skill. And so discrimination can be very, very subtle. And we can put on the outside of the church, visitors welcome, but they're not really welcomed. I've been into some churches that were so cold you could skate down the center aisle. You know, yeah, hey, you're a friendly church. Oh, yeah, we're a friendly church. Aren't we friendly, Bill? Bill, aren't we friendly? Yeah, you and I have been knowing each other for 30 years. We're a friendly church. But someone else comes in that's different. You discover they're really not that friendly at all. When I meet these young pastors and they tell me, well, my target audience is Generation Z and Generation X, I remind them, a time is coming when you're going to be an old person and you're going to think very, very different. God calls us to discriminate, all right, between truth and error, between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. So we need to ask an important question here. Is the Apostle James addressing believers or unbelievers? He's addressing Christians. He addresses them in verse 1 as, My brethren. That's important. Born-again Christians who have been saved but haven't grown. Listen, you're saved by grace, but then God calls you to grow in grace. The moment you're converted, if you carry all this baggage of partiality based on your background. It doesn't dissolve in a day. But as you begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, everything begins to change so that if the visitor is a Christian, you can receive him because he's my brother or sister in Christ. And if the person is a non-Christian, you say, I can receive him because Christ Jesus died for him just as he died for me. But discrimination basically says, I am better than you, or you're not as good as I am. Now understand, the partiality in the New Testament is a double-edged sword like a lot of New Testament doctrines. Take forgiveness. On the one hand, Jesus taught an unforgiving person is lost. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that a true saved person can withhold forgiveness. And so we're commanded, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus forgave us. On the other hand, God teaches that people who constantly show partiality are lost. Everyone, John says, who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And yet James is crystal clear in this text that a believer can also show partiality. So the test of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on a vertical level is the way we treat people on a horizontal level. 
personal favoritism or discrimination is totally incompatible with our confession of faith. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, there are some churches you'd never be welcomed in. Even if Jesus came, he wouldn't be welcomed in them. Jesus came today and he was preaching against transgenderism and homosexuality and all the sins that are covering over this culture. He wouldn't be welcomed, not even close. We're living in precarious days. There are people in our government who want to make the kind of speech that I'm saying, calling the LGBTQ lifestyle an abomination, hate speech. Watch out. Some foolish Christians listen to the Phil Fishes and the John Pipers who said, oh, it doesn't matter who you vote for. It's okay to vote for a Dem. We're headed for some serious days in front of us. So there is the principle of partiality stated. There is the principle of partiality illustrated now in verses 5 through 11, the principle of partiality explained. I want you to see how he explains it, why partiality is wrong. He gives two reasons. The first reason is found here in verses 5 through 7. He begins by showing us that partiality misrepresents God's methodology. Let me read those verses, then we'll go back and look at them in depth. Look at the rhetorical questions he asks, three in number. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Yes, he did. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich man who oppressed is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Is it not they that do that? Yes, it is. Do they not blaspheme the fair name of God by which you have been called? Yes, they do. Now, back here in verse 5, when God says that he chose the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom, the kingdom here, of course, is representing our salvation, not just in this life, but also in the next life to come. So we need to ask a question. Is God partial to the poor? Does God show favoritism to the poor over the rich? Clearly, he's not saying that. For if God were saying that, then he would be guilty of the very sin that he is inspiring the pen of the apostle James to underscore. No, economic status has absolutely nothing to do with God's choice. Understand, God never chooses a person on the basis of who that person is. God always chooses a person on the basis of what that person can become. Now, think your way through this. God does not choose a poor person because he's poor. He chooses him because, according to James, notice he's rich in faith. And God does not reject a rich man because he's rich. He rejects him because he's poor in faith. You know it, that many of God's choicest servants in Scripture were very rich. Men like Abraham, King David, Joseph, and Job, to name just a few. And then there are examples who are sprinkled through the New Testament church. Think about Joseph of Arimathea. Think about Nicodemus, who's converted. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, a very wealthy class. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch who served the queen of Ethiopia. 
He owned his own scroll. That's expensive. You are wealthy if you can do that. Think about Cornelius in Acts 10 or Sergius Paulus, the proconsul in Acts 13, or Lydia, the one who had a business in dyeing purple cloth in Acts 16. But with that said, just know that rich people have always been a minority in the body of Christ, wherever you go in the world. Right out in your margin next to verse 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Let me read it to you. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not wise so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Lady Huntington, a very rich and wealthy woman of English nobility, had John and Charles Wesley as her close friends. And this highly cultured woman read 1 Corinthians 1, and she said, I was saved by the letter M. God did not say any, but not many. He didn't say not any wise, any noble, not many. You see, God chooses the poor man because he tends to be rich in faith, and he tends to reject the rich man because he tends to be poor in faith. Now, understand, God chooses in the fashion that he does because, as we're instructed by Samuel, for God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God chooses the poor because they're rich in faith. But understand that that, uh, riches are never a problem for God. They are only a problem for man. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 10? Let me read it to you. He said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the parable of the sower, he tells us why it is so difficult. Listen to these words from Mark 4, 18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who've heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the world word and it becomes unfruitful. God's word doesn't always find its place in the heart of a rich, wealthy man. Why? Because he's consumed with his wealth, and so he's driven by worry, uh, sometimes a lust for more. Sometimes he finds a false security in what he owns rather than in a relationship with the living God. And so very often, sadly, the rich man tends to put his trust in what he has, and since the poor man doesn't have any of those things, many times he has no other place to turn but to the Lord. So it is hard for the rich man who has everything in the sight of man to enter the kingdom of God because very often his priorities are out of whack. Do you remember that encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler? It's good to read all the accounts. A man whom Jesus said he loved. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, your definition of goodness 
depends often on your view of God. We tend to measure goodness in relationship to one another. But Jesus is saying, to really, truly call someone good, there's only one who is good, that is the Lord God himself. This is not a denial of his deity. This is actually an affirmation of his deity because this man doesn't have it. He's calling him good, but he doesn't really see him as Lord. And so Jesus is going to really tear off the veneer that this man had put over his life, thinking that he was just fine. And he's going to use the law to show him that he's not good at all. That there's only one who is good, and that is God alone. And one of the functions of the law is to show men their sin. When you look in the mirror, you see the dirt on your face. When you look in the mirror of Scripture, you see the dirt on your soul. And so as Luther would say, the function of the law is not to justify you, but to terrify you. And so Jesus uses the law as a tutor, to use Paul's metaphor, to lead us to faith in Christ. So Jesus said to him in Luke 18, 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now listen to the rich man's reply. He said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So Jesus puts his finger on the real issue to show this man how deeply fallen and depraved he really is. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You see, his problem was not simply that he had a lot of wealth, but the wealth that he had owned him. And so Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, with all due respect, I've heard more nonsense preached on this verse, unlike others Maybe more on this verse than any other verse I can think of in the New Testament. Here's a picture of a needle gate, as it's often called. This is an old, old picture, and it's there in Jerusalem on one of the walls. And so when people came into the city, especially at night for security, they would open what today people are calling the needle's gate, and they would unload the camel and as the next picture shows, the camel would have to stoop down and basically walk through on his fours to get into the city. And of course, when you come to one of these sites in Jerusalem, everyone takes out their camera. The Israeli God goes on and pontificates about, you know, the needle's gate that you read in the Bible, but it has absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. Luke, as you know, is a doctor, Dr. Luke, we call him, Paul's personal physician. And God, the Holy Spirit, inspired him to use a word for needle that refers to a surgical needle. And Matthew, in the parallel account, uses a uh, word that can refer either to a surgical needle or to a sewing needle. No way a camel could get through that, a total impossibility. And even the disciples who at time were a little bit hard-hearted, they got it. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? 
But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Do not ever forget whatever the situation is, God can work because salvation is not first and foremost a work of man for God. It is a work of God for man. And God is compassionate. God is loving. God will do everything in his power to stir the circumstances, even the way Jesus uniquely addressed this rich man. He wouldn't call every man to sell everything he had, but because he loved this man, the text says, he reached him in the way in which he needed to be reached. And so here in James 2.5, God describes the poor man as rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Yes, God has done that. He's describing those poor who are rich in faith, and in doing so, he's not telling the poor man to snub the rich man. And he's not telling the rich man to snub the poor man because the poor man might actually be a spiritual millionaire. There are some people who will be poor throughout this life, but they will be very rich in the next. And there are some who are very rich in this life who will be bankrupt in the next, and some Christians who are very rich in this life, but because of the way they use their riches, they'll be very poor, so to speak, in their reward seated Christ. It all depends on whether or not you walk by faith. Adoniram Judson was the very first missionary to leave American soil and to go overseas. In the early years of our country, people would ask for people from the United Kingdom to come here to help reach the pagan Indians and others and to fill pulpits as the American culture grew. But there came a time when Adoniram Judson said, well, God has called us even as Americans to make disciples of all nations. So of all places in the world, he's the first foreign missionary from American soil, and he leaves a little town called Worcester, Massachusetts, where I am from. He prayed, he fasted, he labored for hours, for decades, Saw very little happen at first, 20 years before his first convert. He's arrested. He's hung up by his thumbs. He's then cut down and thrown into a dirty, nasty prison. And his persecutors ask him, now tell us about your plans to win the heathen to your Christ." To which in faith, Judson responded, my future is as bright as the promises of God. You see, every poor person, every rich person, any person can be rich in faith if they walk in faith according to the dictates of Scripture and be multi-millionaires in the coming kingdom to come. Now he says in verses 6 and 7, don't miss it, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich man who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, they do. Do they not blaspheme the fair name of God by which you've been called? Yes, they do. So James is speaking of the wealthy ruling class who especially persecuted the early church. Just read the book of Acts. Classic example, the Sanhedrin. They persecuted the apostles because they were threatened by so many followers that the apostles had. We know from Acts 17, you have rich and wealthy, hardcore pagans in Ephesus who persecuted the Christians there because so many people were one to Christ 
The sales of these rich people collapsed as they were trying to sell their little shrines, their little idols of that goddess Artemis. And of course, when you persecute a true follower of Christ, you are, you are persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Paul, whatever you, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says in the Olivet Discourse, whatever you do, the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And so James can say they are blaspheming the fair name of Jesus. And so in explaining the principle here of partiality, he first underscores that it represents God's method as to how he works. He looks for those who are rich in faith. But secondly, he underscores that it misrepresents God's law. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. The royal law, it's the law of the king, as revealed through a conversation Jesus had on one occasion with a scribe. Remember it? Put it out in the margin, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, you need to understand that in the first century, People didn't hang around asking superficial questions like, who's going to win the Super Bowl? They had questions about, which of the 613 laws are important? How do we apply them? I mean, one of their favorite pastimes was discussing the Word of God. And so Jesus answers this scribe by quoting the Shema. Jesus answered, the foremost is Shema, Hebrew, here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's vertical, your relationship to God. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's horizontal. You love your neighbor without partiality. That's the royal law. That's the law of the king. That's the one that James is quoting. And while we are here, I should say parenthetically that Jesus broadened the definition of a neighbor to include any needy human being that God gives you the opportunity to minister to, either people who are needy physically or people everywhere you look who are needy spiritually. The king's commandment, the royal law, reflects the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his sovereign law that men will someday be judged by and there'll be no court of appeal. Let's keep reading. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is teaching us that to show partiality is to misrepresent God's law. He calls it here a transgression of the law. It's not just a breach of manners. It's sin. You say, but I'm only human. And so in order to drive home the point, notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, we are considered lawbreakers if we break just one law, if you just break, break one link in the law. If you're hanging over a cliff and you're holding on to a chain that's five feet long, 
You're not there thinking, well, the third link is not all that important, or maybe the 27th link, that, that one can go. Every link is important. It's all held together by a single chain. And so don't think as many of the Jews thought in their day that somehow these laws are disconnected. Notice the argument, verse 11. That's why he can say, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you commit adultery but do not commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. He is connecting the Ten Commandments together, and so partiality is a form of hatred, and hatred is connected to murder in Scripture. In fact, if you take the sin of partiality and you connect it to the Ten Commandments, either directly or indirectly, it breaks every one of the Ten Commandments. The First and Second Commandments are broken when you show partiality because you are idolizing your point of view, your opinion over what God has said. The third commandment is broken when you show partiality because you are misrepresenting the name of God and how he thinks and what he stands for. You're taking his name in vain. The fourth commandment is broken when you show favoritism because on the day of worship, you're defiling the place of worship that he has called you to as people of different stripes come in. The fifth commandment is broken by dishonoring the poor because then, in essence, our parents are dishonored by the way we are living. The sixth commandment is broken when you show partiality. Why? Because to hate your brother is to be a murderer. The seventh commandment is broken when you show favor to the rich and the powerful and you show partiality towards the poor. Why? Because you are acting with infidelity and unfaithfulness, something that James is going to underscore for us before we are done that he will call, in essence, spiritual adultery. The eighth commandment is broken when you show favoritism from the poor because you are stealing from them because you are implying that they are worse, less than the rich man is or whatever level you are doing it on. The ninth commandment is broken because to bear false witness by saying he's not important but he is, that's a wicked thing. And then finally, the 10th commandment of covetousness, it is broken because you are saying what is valuable in life is what the rich man has and what the poor man does not. Now, you could take it and you could extend that partiality to just about every realm of life you can think of. You see, in the Jew's mind in the first century, as seen in the Gospels, and the kinds of dialogues that they had with Christ, many times in their minds, these various commandments were unrelated. And they might reason in their mind, well, I've got all these over here that I'm doing well, and this is a plus, and the plus outweighs the negatives. And people are not that much different today. But James is saying, if you break one of the law, you've broken them all. It's like breaking a window pane. If you throw a rock through a window... You haven't just broken part of the window. You've broken the whole window. And so whoever breaks one point of the law, the Bible says, has become guilty of it all. We're all lawbreakers. Not because we've broken every single law. Only one law was enough to make you guilty. Now, people can rationalize and they say, well, you know, I've never done this or I've never done that. One sin 
is enough to condemn you. I had a friend who was a physician some 30 years ago, and he told me of a very deadly poison. He said, Carl, if you get a drop of this in your mouth, as soon as it's in your bloodstream, it will kill you within a minute. It doesn't matter if you take a drop or you drink a bottle. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in just one point because God is so absolutely holy, it's like you broke it all. Now, very quickly, the principle of partiality applied. There are two basic applications that we find in this study. The first is to understand that the Bible and not our background must be our benchmark. That's what he's saying here in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged according to the law of liberty. In other words, don't excuse partiality or discriminating attitudes or actions like, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way I was raised, or I'm only human, because God will judge you according to the word of God. That it's called here the law of liberty, because when you obey the law of liberty, there's tremendous freedom that comes. The believer who is a slave to the will of God is the person who is truly, genuinely free. Submission to God's law is what brings meaning in this life. Lord, whatever you want from me, I will do. Whatever attitudes I have that are disruptive to your kingdom and displeasing to your heart, I want you to change. Then he makes a second application in verse 13 by reminding us that ultimately we are accountable to God for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, that statement needs to be put in the context of this epistle and, of course, the rest of the Bible. James wants us to understand that the person who's characterized by classism or partiality or prejudice or favoritism is a merciless person. The person who's characterized by that and such a person is lost and God will show him no mercy. And he's going to key off of that concept in the next paragraph that we will unfold, God willing, in our next time together. Because he's going to deal with people who say they are Christians, but their lifestyle denies it. And what a sad thing it will be for some to wake up in hell thinking that they're headed towards heaven. Men and women, God is in the business of changing people. He wants to change the lost man, and he wants to grow the saved man. Biblical Christianity will revolutionize your life. It is the most powerful revolutionary thing there is because only biblical Christianity can change the human heart. But it begins with a relationship with Christ. And if you're in the sound of my voice today and you're not sure that heaven is your home, then it's not. And God wants it to be. And you're not sure because you're not sure you're good enough. And you're not. And you never can be. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you will come bankrupt and put your full weight on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that he can change you and command you as your master, he will change you for all of eternity. 
Many of you have crossed that line, and James is one of those little books that is packed with application. And he's encouraging us because he wants us to go further in our walk. He wants to peel back the veneer of spirituality and show us what we are really like so that God can continue to change us to the glory of God. Now, our Father, thank you that in your view, there are no unimportant people in this world. And in the end, you said that we will fully understand that when the first will be last and the last will be first. But you who are rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have saved us through faith and not of ourselves. It is your absolutely amazing gift, not earned by good works so that no one can brag. But you told us that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that once we are saved to do good works, that you prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. And so we ask that as we work through this epistle in the months ahead, that our hearts would be pliable and soft, that you would be able to speak to us, that because of our exposure to Scripture and our application of it, that we would be more like Jesus Christ. I thank you for what you have given us in this church, and I pray that we might excel even more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here and you have a decision to make, to confess Jesus as Lord, to be baptized as an emblem of your faith, or to join this church, here's your opportunity. You might be in Grays, you might be in Graniteville, you might be over in the fellowship hall in a classroom or in this room, and you have a decision to make. I'm going to invite you to leave your seat and there'll be someone in the front to meet you. Matt, come and lead us. If you have a decision, come now.